Communication is all around us, and it is both interpersonal and intrapersonal. The various forms that it appears in captivate us and irritate us at the very same time. And so in our attempts to gauge this and to better understand the way that it influences our own lives, we have brought in today a very special guest, Dr. Jade Olson from the University of Maryland, a senior communications lecturer at both the College Park and Shady Grove campuses. Thank you so much, Dr. Olson, for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Henry. I'm really excited about this podcast and the work that you all are doing. So this is a great opportunity. Yeah, so to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your own educational journey, like how you came to be where you are now? Yeah, I've been at the University of Maryland uh, at College Park actually since 2009, which is a really long time now that I think about it. I started as a graduate teaching assistant while I was working on my master's degree and then also through my PhD and I've stayed on as a lecturer and then as a senior lecturer. So I've been in our community for a while and uh, this is my second academic year at the universities at Shady Grove. Before I was at the University of Maryland, I did my bachelor's degree at Willamette University, which is in Salem, Oregon. And I'm originally from Oregon, just right outside of the Portland area. So I have, I'm a West Coast transplant who is still very much getting used to what it's like to be on the East Coast. What would you say is the difference between living on the West Coast and being raised there and moving here to the East Coast? I think the biggest difference is probably in terms of the pace of life and there's kind of on the West Coast people seem I think to move just a little bit more slowly and be a little bit more laid back and less hurried but I really like the pace of life out here on the East Coast and especially uh, I've worked in DC and then also living and working uh, in the in the suburbs in the in the greater Washington area everybody is uh, moving quickly because they have a lot of important stuff to do. So you had a debate, one time you talked about having a debate scholarship for college. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Something very nerdy about me is that I did competitive debate for many years in high school and in college. I was not especially good at it, but I was good enough that my university provided a scholarship for me. And so they covered part of my tuition as long as I was part of our competitive debate team. And Willamette University is a somewhat unusual school in the sense that they did not at the time, and I, I believe still do not have athletic scholarships, but they have debate scholarships. So I credit debate very much with getting me involved in the study of rhetoric and argumentation and understanding how engaging in dialogue and deliberation can be a mode of growth and a mode of solving problems together through strategic language use. And so on that note, I mean, how much does this knowledge that you've gained from being on debate teams influence the way that uh, you conduct yourself today and even in terms of teaching as well. One of the biggest lessons that we learn from debate is that there are 
a great variety of ways to engage in argument. And when I say argument, I simply mean making claims and supporting those claims with reasons. I don't mean argument the way we often use it colloquially to be a, a fight or something like that. And there is a tendency in a lot of discursive spaces to say that there's a right way to argue and a wrong way to argue in terms of you know, empirical evidence such as data that are collected by scientists are good forms of evidence, but personal stories and anecdotes are bad forms of evidence because they are not uh, representative of entire populations. And debate teaches you that there are many good ways to argue and that the only bad arguments are those that are underdeveloped or that are violent or hurtful or harmful in some way. And if we open up our horizons to think about all the different ways that people engage in the exchange of reasons and how we understand what good reasons to be and how that definition is informed by our social and political and cultural traditions, then we have a much richer way of understanding the process of reasoning and how reasoning can be used to serve goals like growth and justice. But then there's this issue of there's so many people out there that always think about, as you said, I need to get all the facts down and this might be projection along the way, but it's like I need to get all these different pieces along the way for my discussion to make sure that I'm getting everything out there as I need it. And so how would you say we should go about convincing people of developing the argument itself rather than necessarily the facts? That's such a good question, and I, I don't have a good comprehensive answer. But what I will say is that if you start at the point of listening to individuals sharing their experiences and listening to history and trying to understand and get a greater sense of context for issues, and that context comes from facts, but it also comes from traditions, it comes from histories, it comes from accounts of history, which may or may not be factually accurate, but they still carry a lot of argumentative weight, then you start to pick up on how people engage in reasoning in ways that we might say are not rational. And so we've been talking in one of the classes that I teach right now about what it even really means to be rational and about the assumption that a lot of models of political community make, which is that everybody engages in individual rational decision making to serve their self interest and, you know, that we can sort of predict that people will be rational actors. We can't make those predictions. People act against their own self-interest all the time. And a lot of the times they're doing that in the service of a greater good. They're doing it out of a sense of altruism or solidarity or allyship or community and mutual engagement. And so people make decisions based on their morals and based on their backgrounds and often not based on the facts. And so if we can take all of those things and put them together, then we might not solve the problem any faster, but we will at least be much more informed along the way. It's so interesting that you put it like that because in economics there's a similar, similar belief that people make rational decisions whenever they're dealing with, should I go for this opportunity or that opportunity? You talk about an interesting phenomenon that I kind of associate with rationale is when two people watch one movie, they can get such different things out of it. Would that be an example of people just having such different rationale, like in just like how their brain works or like, is this neurological or is it like character content? Like how could we know? 
Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm sure that it is all of those things. And I am not an expert in neurology or neurobiology, psychology, any of that. And so if you talk to folks who are experts in those fields, they'll be able to give you a lot of information about what we know and what we still don't know uh, about perception and cognition and reasoning within an individual person kind of mentally. Um, but what we really look at when we study things like rhetoric and argumentation is the ways that people make meaning of texts or ideas, such as a movie, by putting them into contexts that already exist for them. And so previous experiences that they have had, historical events, other texts, what they've been taught in school and in their places of worship and by their families and by their cultures. And so you're never going to have anybody align and come up with the exact same interpretation of a text. And that's what I think makes rhetoric so interesting is that it's a practice of exchanging reasoned arguments about the work that texts do in society. And Dr. Olson, can you talk us through, I know you talked about moving from the East Coast to the West Coast, but can you talk us through like your, like your educational journey? So like the steps that you took and, and just the path that you took to get you to where you are today? For sure. Well, I am incredibly lucky and privileged. One of the great privileges of my life is that I have always really liked school. And if you like school and you're good at school, you're going to have a, such a better time than folks who um, don't have that experience, often due to really major problematic you know, institutional um, issues. But uh, I always really liked school. And so I got interested in debate uh, as part of, I think I was in eighth grade. We had a little fledgling debate team at my school and it was a little after school activity. And so I got into it at that time. And then in high school, I got really serious about debate and I chose my college uh, essentially on the basis of wanting to continue debate. Willamette University has a really strong debate team and uh, they do really well in the specific format that I was interested in. And then a lot of debaters either go to law school or they go on to study things like rhetoric or politics. And if you want to go to law school, you have to pay a bunch of money. If you want to get a PhD, typically uh, in a lot of programs, they will uh, waive your tuition. And if you're, again, very lucky, which I was, then you can get a graduate teaching assistantship and you can make a uh, modest salary while you are pursuing your degree. Um, and so that was, it was really debate that kind of pro school propelled me to debate and then debate propelled me to rhetoric. And the first time I took a rhetoric class, my very first year of college, I was hooked and I knew that that was what I wanted to go on to study. So how do you convey that love of rhetoric for yourself to your students? I've had several different kind of approaches to this and I'm starting to learn the approaches that work better than others. And the, the way that I started was to kind of try to say to the students, okay, this is what rhetoric is. Let's go through in a linear fashion and let's start with Aristotle and let's build the theory and kind of take this formulaic approach to it because for me, that's how my brain works. That's kind of how I make sense of things. But I've realized that for a lot of students, there is so much going on and there are so many competing responsibilities and obligations and tasks. And, and so rather, I've noticed it's better to start by simply having an open conversation in common colloquial popular language that we all just use in conversations with each other about the work that texts do. Because in fact, 
every person naturally is always engaging in rhetorical analysis and the analysis of argumentation and the analysis of the work rhetoric does in the world. We're just coming up with a vernacular and a systematic structure um, and a body of theory to be able to do that work. But a really famous rhetorical theorist and critic named Kenneth Burke uh, very famously said that all living things are critics. And we don't mean critic like to criticize like, oh, you did a bad thing, but rather like literary criticism or film criticism or something like that. And so when you just kind of start talking with a group of people about the social work that a movie does or that a speech does or something like that, then we start to have a conversation and we start to see where we disagree on our interpretations and we start to bring in context and we start to bring in other texts and then the conversation just gets started from there. And I, we're having that uh, conversation right now in my interpreting strategic discourse class, which is really, really exciting. Awesome. And so in terms of, in your research, how much would you say you found whether or not people themselves in the general populace are literary critics in the way that they digest information? I think people know to a great extent what a person is maybe trying to accomplish when they engage in rhetorical expression, whatever that means, when they give a speech, when they write a book, whatever. Um, and a lot of times as audience members, we have a strong sense of, I know that the author didn't perhaps mean to do this certain thing, but they actually did, right? And so we talk a lot about, you know, intent versus effect. And audiences have a strong sense of that. We know when we're being lied to. We know when we're being pandered to. We know when our values are being upheld and when they're being interrogated. We know when our material interests are being supported and when they're not. And so we all have a sense of the symbolic work that rhetoric does and that argumentation does and we know that texts that we might even not treat as being especially important, like popular media, actually do form very much the, the overall texture and fabric of our social realities. And that's why things like representation are so important in media. It matters for audiences to be able to see people who look like them being depicted with humanity and with dignity and with the full richness of human experience. And audiences know that when they don't see that, it is an omission and it is a decentering, and they don't want to see that. And so they can engage in critical argument about that. I'm not sure if that answered your question at all. <laughs> no, no, it did. Thank, thank you. I was going to ask as a follow-up to that because there's been a growing series of comments made about how like photos from the 50s or the 60s, for example, uh, are made like black and white when in reality there was color photography at that time period. And so with things like that, what kinds of effects do you feel like that has on people that are wondering about the representation for them in the world? The point that you make about the use of color versus black and white photography is really interesting because it sort of speaks to some assumptions that we make about photography as a mode of proof or as a mode of evidence in sort of documenting our social and political histories. And when we see something being in black and white, as you mentioned, we have this connotation that it is in the distant past. And it can be very difficult for all of us to make sense of 
how long it takes for social change to occur and also how quickly that can happen sometimes. And so it can be very valuable to sort of look at the timeline and put dates on things and to say, you know, the Civil Rights Act is not, now I have to do math. Hold on one second. This is not going to go well for me. I'm not a math person. The Civil Rights Act is not even 60 years old, right? Did I do that correctly? Yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so, you know, uh, we, can, we can look at, uh, you know, elders in our community, look at your, your parents or your grandparents or, you know, people who have lived through periods, you know, who, who remember history longer than you have. And, you know, if you ask them about what they remember from when they were younger and the major political moments for them, uh, it will provide a very different sense of a time scale and a very different sense of how an individual person relates to the experiences of history. Um, and in fact, just this morning in my interpreting strategic discourse class, we were watching one of President Obama's very famous speeches actually from back when he was still a candidate in March of 2008. He gave his A More Perfect Union speech in the wake of the controversy with uh, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright. And we were noticing just how differently Obama talked about the notion of race in politics and he articulated a vision of a post-racial society. And he talked about how you know, the beauty of America is this idea that we can rebuild ourselves and we can, you know, learn from our mistakes and that we're not inherently connected to the sins of the past. That speech was only 12 years ago. I remember when he made it. Most of the students in the class remember when he gave that speech. And yet now the, the sort of conversation and the cultural reckoning that a lot of us are having, um, many for the first time, many folks are saying welcome to finally having this conversation, is that yes, of course we are inherently wedded to the sins of the past. Of course the United States will always be connected to its original sin of slavery. And especially when we can still see the fallout of it in every single dimension of public life that you want to look at. And so, you know, how long ago how, how long ago was slavery or how long ago was the Civil Rights Act or how long ago was Roe v. Wade or any of those things? Um, it's If we put things in the past, we make the assumption that we have solved them. And that assumption is really, really dangerous. I have a follow-up. Recently, um, I'm big on TV, movies, all that kind of stuff, but I've been watching The Alienist and it stars Dakota Fanning and she is um, a dete woman detective in the early 1910s. But I've noticed in not just this show, but other shows, but this is just the most recent uh, example I can think of, they'll put uh, people of color as main characters, but I don't think they accurately represent like what it really was like in the 1910s. So I can't tell if they're just trying to have more representation now or if, but then I don't want people to think that it erase, I feel like it erases the pain and the struggle that people of color went through by kind of ignoring that. But I kind of understand what they're trying to do by making it more representative of America now, but it is confusing. Kind of like Hamilton as well. It sounds like this anxiety stems from a notion of, would it be fair to call it revisionist history? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I mean, the idea of revisionist history in one sense assumes that there is a single monolithic narrative of history, which of course is not a true assumption. There are many different stories and accounts of, you know, historical events, and it depends on whose perspective you look at. It depends on the documentation that we do or don't have. It depends on who can access the archives of that documentation. 
And on the one hand, when you're talking, especially I think about a work of fiction, it can be incredibly powerful and indeed radical to imagine what it would look like in a certain place in a certain period if there had been full social and political equity. What would that have looked like? What what more richness would we have had in the fabric of social life if we had not been so... Um, so systemically and so ubiquitously cutting entire groups of people out of the narrative that, that would eventually be told. But I mean, that question gets to anxieties about things like monuments, right? Um, we are all constantly negotiating our own story as a political community, as a society, as Americans, however you want to define that. And that practice of negotiation is really powerful when you recognize that it is a constant ongoing practice. It's a project that is about moving and always engaging and always transcending. It's not a destination. We're never going to get there. We're never going to say, okay, great. We, we told the history. It's definitive now. I think that's so interesting because when we look at some of the arguments of those who might point to a monolithic sort of mindset in terms of how um, when things are signed into law, that that instantly means that the things that they denounce are erased and, or if things are put in textbooks, right, that the issues that they discuss have been solved. And it really kind of addresses like this point of how history is evolving, right? Our stories are evolving. And so in what ways do you feel like is best for us to work towards having this mentality of this growing and evolving history? That's such a good question. And I think that rhetoric and communication and argumentation and all of the things that I find the most interesting, the main insight that they provide there is that the work of telling our story and of crafting our identity as a political community and indeed retelling that story and revisiting that story is work that happens in a great variety of arenas. And that includes the arena of law and policy, but it also includes the arena of media and public memory and artistic representation. In my argumentation and public policy class right now, we also talk about attitudinal inherency. Sometimes problems don't solve themselves because there is, you know, racism and bigotry and xenophobia and, uh, you know, cultural attitudes and customs and stories that have to do with the, the discursive fabric of public life. And so you can pass as many laws as you want if there is still endemic structural racism and a default assumption of white supremacy, you're never going to achieve justice no matter how many laws you pass. And on the flip side, you can take down monuments and you can paint murals and you can change the way that you talk and interact with other people. And those are incredibly important. But if they're not accompanied by structural changes, again, the inherency will persist. And so it has to be both and. And one of the things that frustrates me sometimes about debates over what is the right thing to do politically is that people will say, my way of achieving change is better. No, my way of achieving change is better. It has to be both and. And there's, there's, um, there's kind of an opportunity for everybody to bring their strengths, whether that is in a structural arena or an attitudinal arena.
that's a, such a powerful answer and such a thorough answer to it as well. And so uh, it really kind of leads towards this question of, it's sort of, sort of a two-part question, um, but firstly, like how important is it for you that your students are active in this society in terms of actively pursuing the sorts of change that moves us towards a more perfect union with one another? Um, and then also, um, how has this time period specifically, uh, with all the different things that are currently going on, changed your interactions with your students within the classroom? Those are both such big questions. Let me, let me try to start with the first one. Every student who I encounter is already engaging and has already, well before they met me, been engaging in the work of making and remaking their own identities and their own relationships with others, you know, within uh, what we might call the body politic. And I think a lot of students maybe would not identify themselves as advocates or activists, and they would say, um, you know, that they just because they posted something on Instagram or they decided to use a certain word versus another word, or they did or did not say something in a particular conversation, we might not view those things as necessarily like political acts, um, but they certainly are political in the sense, not of electoral politics necessarily, but of politics as a study of how power is distributed in society and how we manage that and what we do with that. And so, um, you know, it comes back to that, that same idea that all living things are, are critics. Everybody is pretty much always engaging in political action because when you talk and exist in public, you're engaging in political action. And so I just really like to listen to students talk about the ways that they do that and the reasons that they do it. And then in terms of everything that has happened in the last several months, it's very challenging because a lot of students very much want to talk about it. And I put out a pre-semester questionnaire at the beginning of each semester and I ask students, what do you want to talk about in this class? What do you hope that we talk about? And also, are there some things that you kind of hope we don't talk about? And usually that second question is so that I can provide a content warning so that I can say as a heads up, oh, this text includes a scene with this thing. And so, you know, you might not want to read it or whatever. But this time, in my pre-semester questionnaire, I got equal amounts of students saying, I want to talk about this pandemic. I want to talk about Black Lives Matter and racial justice and police violence and, you know, the brutality of the white supremacist state. Um, I want to talk about, you know, rising fascism and, and sociopolitical upheaval. And also students saying, I don't want to talk about that. I can't, I don't have the bandwidth. We're talking about it in every arena that there is. And for some students, I think they are in a pretty privileged position and they don't want to interrogate that, which I hope they come around. But for other students, and this is the, the group that I'm more concerned about, it's really hard to just relive your trauma all the time and to constantly be talking about the ways in which um, the things that are happening right now are about you and they're about the ways in which you are not valued by state structures and by society and things like that. So it's, it's been a difficult balance to try to create space for us to talk and process these things, but then also not be just constantly overwhelming with it. And so I try to just switch back and forth and I try to let the students take the lead, but gosh, it's been really tough. I appreciate your effort and your classes uh, reflect how hard and how often you think about this. I just want, I wanted to let you know that. 
Thank you. I mean, I really, um, one of the things, and I, I'm not, uh, this is not just flattery. I truly, really mean this. One of the things that I love about teaching at USG is that the student group who I've had the privilege of interacting with in um, my communication classes very much is an active group of scholars. And by scholars, I mean people who are dedicating their time and energy to the pursuit of knowledge and the application of that knowledge to, the, to creating the good life for all of us. And, you know, I see myself as somebody who can kind of sit on the sideline and, you know, listen and provide frameworks and theories that help us to talk about these things, um, but that really it is the scholars in the class who are leading this conversation, and I learn a great deal from them about what are the best and most useful ways um, to talk about some of these events, and what are some of the ways that experts and professional academics talk about these events that maybe don't have as much utility to real everyday actual students and what do we do about that disconnect. Can you give us a little insight as, as to just like what you talk about with your students because I know for some it's hard for you know for us to even like talk to anyone about the, the Black Lives Matter movement or the police reform or just like just the injustices that are you know being faced all around uh, you know you know, school and for example, you know, some institutional instructors just don't necessarily talk about these things with, you know, their students. And I know some, you know, African American students find it really harsh because not everyone, you know, is being like listened to or heard. So what are some things that are good takeaways for students to you know, learn or to know that maybe this is going on and I know it's not gonna be spoken about in our schools but, you know, what, just like what are things that we can take what it does that is just important to know? That's such a good question. And I, I do feel like I should mention, since this is an audio medium, you may not know that I am white. Um, and so as a white instructor, um, one of the things that I have tried to figure out is how do I make sure that I am centering the work and the experiences of our scholars of color? And when I say that, I mean the students in our classes and then also um, the, the experts and professional academics and activists whose work we study and we talk about in those classes. Um, how do I work to center the language of scholars of color and especially right now of black scholars um, so that we're talking about these things, but also recognizing the severe limitations that I as a white American have in being able to understand them. And so what I've really tried to do is listen to my colleagues of color and listen to uh, especially black scholars who are doing this work and finding ways to bring them into the classroom and open that up for discussion. And so for students who uh, want to engage with these ideas, but maybe, you know, the classes that you're taking right now, uh, for whatever reason, you're not talking about those things. I encourage you to go into spaces like social media, to go onto the library's website, to go talk to a librarian. They're incredibly friendly and they can connect you with resources. It's not just a big building full of old books. Um, and encounter the work of scholars who are doing the things that you want to talk about and engage in those conversations in spaces surrounded by people who understand um, the importance of talking about that work. And that could mean that you're going on Twitter, right? There's a lot of different ways that you can do that. Um, and I hope that for teachers who are not trying to do things like center issues of racial justice. I hope that the reason they're doing that is because they don't feel, you know, 
competent to do so. There are a lot of white teachers who have no business talking about this stuff. I hope that I'm not one of them. I am trying to be good enough to be able to talk about it. Um, but probably it would be better for some people in some classes to just not talk about it than to talk about it badly. But the ideal would be that we could talk about it in a way that is engaging and meaningful and that is informed by the work of the scholars who actually are doing the necessary work. Amazing. Yeah. What were you going to say, Carolyn? Oh, well, I recently, this is kind of off topic, but I'll get around back to Black Lives Matter. I feel like social media hurts my brain, but I also feel like it's where I get the most accurate, pertinent information about Black Lives Matter and stuff of that nature. So I feel so conflicted. I don't know. When you say you feel conflicted, do you mean that it, it, it hurts your brain in the sense of the quality of discourse is not where you would like it to be or or that it's just like too much? It's my own immaturity that I can't be on a social media platform without comparing my life to someone else's, but it is where I get my best information and uh, updates and things that I have no business like tweeting about. I listen to other people, people of color, and that's where I get a lot of great information. But then on the other side, it does have a mood. I don't know. It has a mood. It can take your mood down, I guess. A lot of people in a lot of different fields, including um, you all and your colleagues in the classes that you take and your faculty and uh, everybody are working on the question of what social media is doing to us from a great variety of perspectives. And, you know, we're still learning every day about that. And I'm by no means an expert in social media. I'm a rhetorician. I'm kind of old school. I'm, and there are a lot of rhetoricians that do study social media. I don't mean to participate in the stereotype that rhetoricians only look at older stuff, but I, I am like that. Um, and so I'm not super qualified to talk about social media in particular, um, but some of the recommendations that I know have been helpful, at least for me personally, are to try to limit your intake of social media and kind of ask, and Caroline, this was sort of, I think, what you were talking about, what good do I get out of social media and then where is it bad and kind of try to lean into the good parts. And if you can use it as a tool to learn from others and expand your horizons and get your news from credible reliable, trustworthy sources, I guess that would be the ideal. But I struggle with it a lot. I spend way, way too much time on social media. So that, do you feel as though social media is something that we can't live without now? I know that there, there's like good and bad parts to it, but I guess now, especially now with everything virtual, we have to take the good and the bad. And it does a good job of like getting news out to, and like spreading like the information about a lot of things that you wouldn't know in, in the span of a second. So, but it also has its drawbacks because there can be a lot of misinformation. So do you think it's one of those things that we just can't live without? I mean, it certainly seems to be now a basic structure of information in society. And that is, I mean, it's, I would say social media is probably net beneficial in the sense that it, the benefits that it gives us have probably to some extent outweighed the harms. I'm looking at this from a political perspective. And so understanding the role that social media has played in um, facilitating social uprisings and facilitating social movements, not only in this country, but around the world, um, in a lot of context, social media is and ha has been used very differently than how we tend to use it, uh, at least within popular culture in the United States, 
it has been truly a lifeline for activists and for organizers who are trying to facilitate political revolutions and political uprisings that would be impossible otherwise. And so it's difficult to talk about social media as a monolith as you know, it's the channel that facilitated a political revolution and also the place where I look at pictures of dogs and make jokes that are about jokes that are themselves about other jokes. So, I mean, at this point, social media is media and you can't cast media with a broad brush, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Like, social media, like you said, is pretty multi-dimensional now. You have the good and the bad. It can facilitate the uprisings as well as, you know, like, you can see other things, but it's just, I think it's so involved in our lives right now that we just can't live without it. Very much so. And I think social media also plays a role in sort of democratizing access to information. And we can look at a lot of technologies that put the power of circulating information into the hands of people who uh, it has been kept from historically. And so you can do that with photography, you can do that um, with social media. And so anytime that you have some type of system or structure or technology that allows people to speak out and to share their experiences and to to document those experiences um, and to get that out to other people without the gatekeeping of a structure that is invested in keeping that information from circulating, then that's fabulous. And yet, social media networks also engage in that gatekeeping, right? And that's part of the conversation that we're having now about what is the responsibility of platforms like Twitter and Facebook to engage in fact-checking, uh, at what point is at what point should someone be deplatformed? Um, you know, we, t we had talked earlier about how market-based models of society make certain assumptions that political models of society don't. And um, you, can, you can do that very much when you're talking about questions of, um, of, of the public space, right? Like we used to have, or at least the historical narrative goes, there used to be public spaces where any person could go and say what they needed to say, and you could agree with them or not, and you could engage in deliberation. And of course, the histories we have of those spaces are very much written by people uh, who are part of the dominant majority, and we've always restricted access to public space on the basis of identity and things of that nature. But when you get into social media, you have the additional um, factor of uh, these being completely privatized spaces. And you have people who um, maybe don't have as strong of a sense of how the data that they provide to these networks are being utilized and traded and sold and shared with other parties. Um, and then you also have individuals um, who have a vested interest in in subjugating certain messages and elevating other messages who are in control of what is now de facto the public sphere. And that's incredibly dangerous. Um, again, I am not an expert on that, but there are a lot of really, um, really great communication scholars who are looking at these questions and trying to figure out how do we build an accessible, equitable digital public sphere in the 21st century. And I think we're, we're working on that, but Twitter ain't it. That's such a critical question. And I mean, in terms of like going back to the past, like soapboxes in public parks and people standing on their soapbox and it's like the only thing you can control is maybe the box itself and the words that you say. And you're at the mercy of the people that come by and the people that they tell about what what it was that you said. But then being on social media, you're at the mercy of everyone. And 
unfortunately, there's so much more that we could go into and talk about. Respect your time. Um, unfortunately, we might have to pause it there. But in a general sense, I mean, communication is this record of that's written upon our hearts and is the method that we express ourselves to other people. And we build up this record through the way that we choose to digest that knowledge that's available to us all. And it's a privilege to freely communicate with one another. And it's a right that we should not squander, as you, Dr. Olson, referred to several times. And this, these unique perspectives that we have really help to color that record that we put together. And so we have to work to be bold enough to share with one another from the heart. And so on that note, uh, we'd like to thank you so much, Dr. Olson, for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Olson. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. And it's so great to meet you all. Great meeting you as well. Have a good rest of the week, y'all. Have a great week. All right, so in a way to debrief from that wonderful conversation about communication, uh, it's important for us to also acknowledge the ways that we interact with our fellow classmates and future colleagues at USG. And so for me personally, um, I'm a part of the Psychology Student Association with UMBC, and I'm on the executive team for them. And then I'm also a part of the USG Student Council uh, and doing a lot of wonderful things there. Uh, shout out to Tiffany, Student Council President. Shout out to Joy, uh, Student Council VP, and to the rest of the executive team. Um, I'm also, last year I was involved with the writing of the satisfaction survey for USG, engaging uh, student satisfaction. Uh, with things that were going on, and then it had to shift to be about COVID-19. And I did some collaboration with UCA for this podcast in, the, in that they helped me set it up. What about you all? Okay, I can go next. So for me, um, I wanted to be involved with a lot of organizations, not just with my institution. So... Um, I applied to be um, the UMAN for the University of Maryland Association of Nursing Students. Um, I'm the co-BTN, so co-break through the nursing chair, so we um, find different events, um, we bring people on campus um, to increase the awareness and knowledge for nursing students. Um, and we're also part of the Student Council Vice President, like Henry mentioned, we're all doing great things um, with that organization. Um, and I am also a part of Girls on Fire. It's all about empowering women um, and just seeking ways to find that resilience and, and just, you know, find a way to support women um, in these difficult times. Um, being part of the involvement fair today, um, looking into the Care Package Club, which um, seeks different ways and means to um, just find different resources for communities that are you know, in need or communities that are faced with different challenges. Yeah, strategies. Um, and I'm still being a part of the Trailblazers, which is for our first generation um, 
first generation students. So it's, it's just taking ways and means to find the resources to just help um, help empower first generations. Um, you know, move to the next level by getting the bachelor's or a higher education. So yeah, that's all I'm about. Next. Um, I'm Caroline. Um, I'm, I help with this podcast and then I also help with, I'm this uh, Center for Student Engagement and uh, Financial Services. I'm their design intern. Uh, coming up this semester, we have an open mic, we have LGBT events, we have a, a mental health wellness week. Um, next semester, we're going to have our international night, which is always fun and a big deal. Um, also, I want to shout out the Counseling Center. I recently got into counseling there, and I really, really enjoy it. So if you're going through a tough time with this pandemic, check it out. They have all sorts. They have a bereavement group. They have um, an addiction group. They have a lot of group therapy. They have just general therapy. And I think they have uh, – you can make a – very easy to make an appointment uh, through their website. All right, I'm Daria, and I'm involved in also with 9T, and then in my home institution of University of Baltimore, I was actually I'm actually in the Criminal Justice Honor Society in New Omicron, and so here's basically these two. That's uh, when I was an undergrad in Towson. I did a little bit more involvement in groups, but just these two for now. And I'm involved in like some extracurricular activities outside of campus as well. Awesome. Thank you all for sharing. And it's really important that you find ways to get involved in your educational experience and that you really work to broaden it beyond just your classes as you really prepare to move into your future. And a part of that future is voting. The USG Student Council is hosting a forum about voting on Friday, October 9th from 3 p.m. to 4.30 p.m., where guest speakers will be coming in to talk about why voting is so important, about the different things that you need to know as you're going to vote in whatever method that you choose, and making sure that you also are aware of different ways to get other people involved in the election process as well. And on that note, thank you all so much for joining us today. Feel free to use the voice message feature on Anchor to provide any questions, comments, or suggestions for things you'd like to see in this podcast. And you can tune in to us via several places where you normally find your podcasts, including Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. And follow us on our social media pages on Instagram and Twitter at USG the number 9T as well as on the Facebook group at 9T Podcast USG and we'll catch you next time on 90.